Well, I'm excited to be back to Isaiah with you. It's been a little bit since we've got to enjoy this great prophet. And uh, tonight, and Lord willing, next Sunday night, we'll get to spend some time looking at Isaiah yet again. Isaiah 40 is the message of comfort, the turning point of the prophecy, telling the people that God is going to come, that God is going to deliver despite the fact of their sins, despite the fact that they have rebelled against the covenant. God will be faithful to his promises. He will deliver his people and do not ask that or consider that God does not see your circumstances or your condition. That's really chapter 40 in a nutshell of what God has been declaring to the people. And chapter 41 begins with this message that I want all the peoples to be put on trial and listen to the choice between God and your idols and decide then which it is going to be. Notice verse 1 of Isaiah 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. And so here is God. He calls out to all the peoples of the earth and says, Come near me for judgment. And everybody keeps silent while I have something to say. And when I'm done saying it, then you'll have something to speak. And that's how chapter 41 now sets up. At the very end, he's going to ask a question. Now, give your answer, but God is going to now lay out his case. Notice verse 2. Who stirred up the one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him. So that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like the dust of his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last. I am He. Notice that beginning point then. Here God begins by saying, Alright, I am accomplishing something. I am stirring somebody up from the east and I am going to give him victory at every step. This is likely referring to the coming of Cyrus. Probably our first real veiled reference that will be specified in just a couple of chapters by name. Here he says, I'm going to accomplish something that is going to bring about deliverance that nobody's going to understand. That everybody's going to stand back in wonder and in awe. But right here, the point is not the prophecy of Cyrus. The point is the question that's made in verse 2 and in verse for who is doing all of this? Who is in charge of the affairs of the world? Who is the one who is accomplishing his purposes through kings such that nations rise and fall and other kings rise and conquer? Who is doing all of these things? And God says in verse 4, it's me. God says, it is I, I am the one who is controlling the things that are going on in the world. I am the one who is accomplishing these things because I reign and I have ultimate authority. 
And he really goes a little bit further there. I love how he words it in verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. And it's not a statement of eternal nature, I am the first and the last, but I am with the first and with the last. The reference is to the generations. I have been in charge of these things from the first generation all the way to the last. I am watching over these things. I know what is going on and I am the one who rules over these things. And it is a very powerful statement that here is God saying, I've got control. And that is supposed to be a basis for their faith. And it's supposed to be a basis for our faith. That God is not off taking a nap. That He's not unaware of the events of this world. That God does not sit on the throne and look down at the things that are happening in the United States of America or in North America or on the globe and goes, well, I just don't know what's going on down there. What should I do? God says, from generation to generation, I know what's going on. From generation to generation I reign and rule and empower the events of the earth. It's an amazing declaration that God reigns and that doesn't stop just because wickedness increases. Think about world empires and world nations that began as the right arm of God and then fell into iniquity and sin and going their own way. It wasn't that God had gone astray. Even His own people, the nation of Israel that He empowered to be His people and brought them up to a massive power under the days of Solomon. God still ruled and reigned while His people committed sin and the nation went off into captivity. Just because wickedness abounds and things go sideways in terms of morality and unrighteousness, does not mean that God does not see. And it certainly does not mean that God is not in control. And that is a basis for our faith as we look around and see the things that happen in this world. That we not forget that God is in charge of this earth. And God reigns. And notice what that leads into in verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good! And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. So here God says, All right. Everybody's looking for control, trying to figure out what's going on on the earth. And God says, here's the answer. I'm in control. I'm the one that rules. I'm the one that's watching over the affairs of the earth. I have the ultimate authority. And now how do people respond to that ultimate authority? As always, a foolish response. Notice the two places the people turn. This is a description of the earth. He says, the coastlands and the ends of the earth now react. Here is their response to these things. And what do they do? Do they all bow down and go, you're right, God is in charge. Let's turn our lives to God and pray to Him and worship Him. No. 
He says what people do is one, they turn to each other and say, hey, be strong. Well, we have that today. The world is a mess. Your life is all upside down in turmoil. Go find some other human to tell you to be strong. Go read a book and he'll tell you how you're supposed to fix your life and you'll be strong and it'll all be worked out. Go listen to somebody on TV. Go find a psychologist. Go get somebody smart and have somebody tell you to be strong. He says that's what foolish people do. They turn to each other and rely upon each other and say, you got to be strong. You're going to be fine. Or what does he tell them to be strong in? They go and say, be strong. Be strong as you do what? Make your idols. <laughs> here you have this, this person here, this craftsman telling the goldsmith, I want you to be strong. Build that idol so that we can fasten it and nail it down so it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> we'll put our trust in that. Hammer that thing down to the ground so it doesn't fall over. We've got to make sure we put our trust in that. And this is exactly what we do. As we try to grab on to control in this life and try to be in charge of things, we either look to human strength or we look to material things for control or for help. And so we turn to other people and that's going to save us. We'll turn to our children, we'll turn to our spouse, we turn to our job, we turn to money, we turn to having a home or pleasure or hobbies or we just need a new president or we need a new governor or we, we, we need a new system and we, we, we need all, we need this. If we would just change this, this would fix it. And we put all of our hope in that. God says that's the foolish response. It's the response of the world. Looking to other people, looking to other things as that, as if that will be the hope. As if that will be your help. As if that will make everything better. I, don't know, I, I haven't been around too long, but I think I'm finally realizing, you know, it doesn't really matter who you put in office. They never do what they say, and then we have to get somebody else, and then they don't ever do what they say, and we get all upset and think, well, we got to get that guy. He's going to do something, and guess what? He doesn't do anything. We, we, we just look and think, well, this is going to fix it now. It's going to all be better now. And he says, that's what the world does. The world puts their hope in these things. The world looks to humans and think that they're going to be the answer. We need to put our hope in technology. That will save us. That will make things better. Now we'll be more restful and more productive and more at ease. And we'll all get way more vacation time because we can now have all this technology strapped to our faces. That's all we need. This is what the world keeps doing is looking for deliverance and help and control in all of these arenas. God says that's the foolish response. And you catch that in verse 8 with that very... First sentence, but you, Israel, that's not the way the people of God are supposed to be. This is the response of the earth, the response of the world. We can't be caught up in that and think that through politics or through technology or through family or through anything else that we're going to find some kind of resolve or hope or control or deliverance. He says, verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you who I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. 
I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Amazing message. He says, the world looks in all the wrong places. Here's God saying, first few verses, I'm in charge. I'm in control. I'm over the affairs of the earth. Humans run around and go, no, it's all me. I'll trust in myself. I'll trust in my things. It'll be in technology. It'll be in other people. That's what's going to solve it. God says, but not my people. And I submit to you that that's the intent of verse 8, that it's not just simply Israel in terms of present tense as Isaiah speaks, but he's looking down through, this is a message for whoever is the people of God at all times. Because notice it's not just Israel. He says, it is Jacob whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. This is a, a term that is used over and over again to speak of who the true people of God are. Remember Ephesians chapter 1. And you get to about verse 4. And one of the things he says is that you are chosen. You're my people. You're chosen from the foundations of the earth. Here's that same language. You get over to Galatians chapter 3. And he calls Christians there the offspring or sons of Abraham. That, that, that terminology is just used throughout the Bible, always pointing to here's what my true people do. Here's what they look like. Here's what it will be. And so here is what God is saying. You are my servant. I've chosen you and I've not cast you off. God is saying to his people, I'm not setting you aside. Yes, the physical nation is being taken into captivity. We've seen that in the first 39 chapters. You've sinned. Your iniquities are as high as could be. And so off to captivity you go. But it's not over. There's a remnant that's going to come back. There is going to be my true people who will worship me properly, who want to hear my words and will obey them. And I will put a spirit within them and that will make them want to obey my words. We have these prophets saying these words. And here you have that same imagery, the same picture being said. You're my servant. I haven't cast you off. So verse 10 becomes the powerful statement to hold on to. So do not fear. Why? Why should God's people not fear in the midst of, imagine if you were in this scene, in the midst of all the turmoil that's going on, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of knowing that a foreign nation was being used by God to arise up and destroy Israel and send them into captivity. And God says, but you're my people. I haven't cast you off, so I don't want you to fear. 
And notice the five reasons he gives, really six if you end up counting verse 11 as well. But first, these five reasons he gives in verse 10. Don't fear, why? I'm with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here is God coming in and saying, don't trust in your things. Don't trust in other people. That's not what my people do. He warns them and tells them and says, I'm your God. That's not your God. I'm your God. Those won't help you. I will help you. Those won't strengthen you. I will strengthen you. Those will not uphold you. I will uphold you. And as a great message to us, do not look to ourselves or to other people or to material things for strength that we need. God says, I'm your God. I'm your helper. I'm your strength. I uphold you. I am with you. I'm the one you turn to. I am the one that you rely upon. And he does not cast off his chosen. And notice how how verse 11 continues it when he says, you know, those people who are incensed against you, I'll destroy them. That has become, I think, one of my favorite concepts recently that I've never seen before that the prophets keep saying your enemies become God's enemies when you belong to God and you're following him your enemies that stand against God, stand against righteousness, stand against what is just and good and right by the eyes of God, they become God's enemies. And that's what's being pictured in verses 11 and 12. All those people are trying to contend with you, you won't find them because I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to deal with them. And don't think that's an Old Testament concept only. What's one of those verses you like a lot? Remember Romans chapter 12? What does he say? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For or it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Why? What does that have to do with anything? The Lord is saying, your enemies of righteousness, God will deal with. That's why you don't have to deal with it. That's why you don't have to return evil for evil. That's why you don't have to respond the way they respond to you. God will deal with that because your enemies are God's enemies when you're walking with Him. And God says He'll deal with that because I am your God, so do not fear. I will uphold you, so do not be dismayed. I am with you, so do not give up. It is an amazing message that He says. Think about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation continues that very message. Here are the Christians. They are being persecuted. They are being killed for the cause of Christ. They are standing in the face of death. You see that image of before all of these things happen, the people of God must first be sealed. And so the angel goes through and seals them and says, all right, they're sealed. And the next thing you see is they are dead because they are with God, because they have suffered for the cause of Christ. And you have the saints under the altar crying out, well, how long until there is vengeance? How long till there is 
justice. And God says, a little while longer till the rest of you die, and then I'm going to do something about it. And the book of Revelation then unfolds as the enemies of God are destroyed throughout the book until you get to chapter 20 where Satan himself is dealt with. Because God deals with the enemies of his people. Our enemies become God's enemies. And that's the most powerful big brother you can call into the neighborhood to win. You know, and you always want to have... I was an only child growing up, so, you know, you go have bad times. Didn't have, I didn't have somebody to haul in the older brother to come deal with these punk kids, you know. You don't have to worry about your enemies. And we don't have to worry about what we face as we go forward in a society that continues to turn more and more away from God. God will deal with these things. We continue to do what is right. We continue to teach. We continue to show an example. We continue to act like Christians and know that anyone who stands against that becomes God's enemies. God will deal with them. And God will do it justly and rightly. Verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Do not fear. I am the one who helps you. God makes that promise over and over again to His people. Put your trust in God. He will accomplish it. He will strengthen you. And He will help you. Notice now what that does for us. Verses 14 through 20, I'm going to spend the most amount of my time, so don't freak out when we spend a lot of time here and we're like still looking at 21 to 29. 21 through 29 is going to be real fast. But 14 to 20 is just staggering now what God says. So here we are and God says, okay, my people, they're not going to act like the world. They're going to put their trust in me and they have no reason to fear because I strengthen them. I uphold them. I'm their God. I am with them. Ready to go? Yes, we are ready to go. Look at verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You go, wait a minute. I thought you were building me up here. (laughs) Wait a minute. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, for for I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water I will put in the wilderness the cedar the acacia the myrtle and the olive I will set in the desert the cypress and plain and pine together that they may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this the Holy One of Israel has created it this is fantastic so verse 14 first point But don't forget who you are. (laughs) 
God is with us. I have no reason to fear. God will uphold me. He is with me. But don't forget your place. Jacob, you're nothing in comparison to God. You were, Jacob, he says. You men of Israel, and I don't think men is used in a strong way, but in a contrast to divinity. You're just humans before the Almighty God. And the reason why that is powerful because of what God says here. Israel at this point is nothing. They're getting blasted by everybody that comes along. We read about earlier that in Isaiah, Assyria has come along. They've taken Jerusalem all the way up to the neck. Hezekiah has now failed. And now has been told now Babylon's going to take it all. You're nothing. Did you see what God said he's going to do? Verse 15. You're nothing, but God is going to make you something. God is going to accomplish something amazing, is what he says. Now, it's language we don't understand. I have to go look this up. He says, I'm going to make you a threshing sledge. I don't know. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Got to do some homework there. What's a threshing sledge? All right. Big wooden platform that you put heavy rocks on top so it would be weighted down and dig into the earth. But underneath was all kinds of sharp objects that were attached to it. And what you did was that after you would pluck the grains, particularly of corn, you would run this threshing sledge over it so that this grain would now be ready for winnowing. So you just run it over with all of his teeth and just would just tear up all that husk and all of that so you'd be ready to winnow it all through. So God says, I'm going to do that for you. You're going to be a threshing sledge. But I want you to notice, what are you going to thresh in the picture? Did you see it? Look at verse 15. He says, I'm going to come along. You're nothing. I'm going to make you something. I'm going to make you like a threshing sledge. And you're going to thresh the mountains. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh, you're going to destroy mountains. You're going to just go ride over mountains and pulverize them. Notice that language, how he does that. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away and the tempest shall scatter them. You're going to be wiping people out. And I hope with that language you see why I'm forward looking with Isaiah's prophecy because Israel wiped out nobody. The physical nation was never, ever, ever a threat from, from the time they're taken away, really from the days of Solomon. But there's no pointing to, well, yeah, Israel came along and they were really a power in the world. He's not talking to the physical nation. He's talking to the true people of God. He's talking to the offspring of Abraham. And he's saying, I'm going to accomplish something amazing. I'm going to accomplish something that you will be strong because I will be your help. And that will cause you to overcome the mountains. That's used of all kinds of images that we understand. We understand mountains in terms of obstacles. Mountains are often used of rulers and kings and nations. 
Whatever stands before you, God says, I am going to help you. I will be the one with you. I will cause you to be strong so that any obstacle that comes along, you will be able to completely crush. And why will that all happen? Notice what that's going to accomplish in verse 16. Second half of verse 16. What will the people of God do? It says in verse 16, they shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. God is saying, I'm going to do something amazing with you. I am going to take you. And I am going to help you in such a way so that you overcome your obstacles. And that will cause you to glory in the Lord and rejoice. In fact, verses 17 through 20 really drive at that. That God's going to reverse your fortunes. Here's the poor and the needy looking for water and there is none. We can't do anything for ourselves. But verse 17 says, I am the one who's going to answer and I'm going to pour out blessings. I'm going to cause this great reversal. I'm going to do all of these things. Why would God do that? I want you just to step back and think about what Isaiah is doing here. He's talking to people who are a bunch of rebels who have completely broken the covenant, who are going going to be going off into Babylonian captivity because of their sins. They are not trusting in God at any step of the way. They keep trusting in other nations and other things. And here's what God says. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to reverse your fortunes. I'm going to cause you to overrun your enemies for this one great purpose. And he has to ask, why would God do all this? Why would God reverse the fortunes of people who are a bunch of sinners and rebels? Verse 20. That they may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So the people would stand back and go, God did that. The people could stand back and say, that person and their life was a total disaster. And God came along and radically transformed that. And look where they are now. That really, that's the essence of what the church is. Is taking a bunch of people who are completely wrecked by sin and broken by the world and radically transforming their lives so that they'll put God's glory on display and people will go, yeah, something amazing happened there. You just sang a song tonight that just said that. The world's Bible that we sang. That we are going to be so radically changed by what God has done that people will be able to look at us and go, wow, God's done something amazing in your life. And that is the picture that is being given that God in His goodness and His mercy and kindness and grace is creating radically transformed people so that we would be to the praise of His glory and so that other people would look at us and praise God for that and recognize, wow, something has come along here. God has accomplished something great that God wants to use our lives for His glory. If, I don't have time, but I can just think of there are countless people that I know that came from terrible circumstances, sinful backgrounds, terrible 
upbringings, pain and suffering, wreckage, broken family, abusive homes. And these people came to Jesus and they truly surrendered their life. And you see amazing transformation. You see amazing things happening in their lives. People who you would say, would well, there's no way they're going to make it. Who give their lives completely to God and follow in the ways of the Lord and allow their lives to be radically changed. Things dramatically change in their life and it starts a whole new hope for the future that there is this great reversal that God can cause. This is one of the great messages of hope that we have to offer to the world. That you don't have to perpetuate this life of disaster and sinfulness. And that the answer is not more technology or another human being. Those aren't going to be the fixes. And the world is looking for fixes in all kinds of things from drunkenness and drugs and trying to find it through sexual immorality. And we're going to find the answer somewhere to to cause some peace in our lives. And God is saying, if you'd come to me, I'll radically transform your life. I can make you a threshing sledge and I can just pulverize those mountains because the people of God look to me and I will uphold them and I will carry them through and I will give them the strength that they need because they won't put their eyes and their hope in other places or in other things. And this is the amazing God that we serve who has the power to change our lives if we will give our lives to him. I think that's what I put up on the screen. First Peter 2, 5. As you come to him, the living stone, what's he doing with us wrecked people? Taking us and building us into living stones that are being built up into the spiritual house. Oh, it's a great image that Peter gives. You're taking a bunch of wrecked people. And as we come to Christ, the true living stone, he makes us stones and builds us up into this great kingdom of God. So I told you I spent a lot of time there real fast. 21 through 29. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come thereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up from from the north and he has come from the rise of the sun and he, he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as a potter treads clay who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we may say he is right. There is none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. 
So God ends it. Remember, he said, I want you all to be quiet. Silence coastlands, and I'll ask you to speak. Here's now he asked them to speak. Verse 21, he says, all right, set forth your case. What can your idols do? God just laid out his case. Here's what I will do. If you will put your trust in me, I will help you, sustain you, and uphold you, and I will be your help and your strength. I'll make you a threshing sledge that will pulverize the mountains. And now he turns around and says, will your God do that? That person you're trusting going to do that for you? Is that material thing that you're putting your hope in going to do that for you? Why would we turn to anything else or anyone else when God has promised to be with you and to strengthen you? And that's God's answer. Your idols are worthless and useless. The things that we put our trust in are a waste. They are foolish. They do not help. May we hear the message of Isaiah. You're trusting in all the wrong things. You're putting your hope in all the wrong things. Put your trust in God to change your life. Put your trust in God to change your family. Pursue the Lord in all of His ways. And when we trust in the Lord to do that, the Scriptures are filled with promises. I'll just give you two. How about Psalm 1? If you'll pursue the Lord, if you'll put your trust in Him, He'll make you like a tree planted by the waters. Oh, strength. I'll plant you firmly. How about Psalm 23, a favorite that almost anyone can quote, right? You'll be able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And you have nothing to fear. For God's with me. He sustains me. He'll carry me through. That is the promise that God is giving over and over again to His people. To put your trust in Him. To see what God is offering to each and every one of us is glorious. And we can experience this reversal. We can experience the spiritual restoration that God is able to sustain us. And then we would glorify in God for what he's accomplished. That we won't allow his great blessings to just terminate on us. But then share that good news with other people and say, God has radically changed my life. And I think everyone in this room can sit back and see all that God has accomplished. Because we've chosen to pursue him. God has radically changed my life. He has completely changed everything about from where I came from to where I am today. I can't even begin to understand how my life stands where it is today, 39 years later. I can't even begin to grasp it. All I can say is God keeps his promises. You trust in the Lord. He'll continue to work things out. He'll continue to help you. And strengthen you and carry you through through the darkest of times and the greatest difficulties. He'll turn you into a threshing sledge, though you are nothing if you'll put your trust in him. Pull your song books out. We sing the invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. What a glorious hope and confidence is described for us by Isaiah. If you'll be his servant, he says, Trust me, you have nothing to fear. You are my chosen. You are my offspring of Abraham. You are my delight. And I want you to be with me. And so God has accomplished that through Jesus Christ, making it possible for us to be children of God. May we look at what God is offering in those blessings and stop turning to our own wisdom, our own way of thinking, 
to other humans, stop turning to other systems, stop turning to possessions and physical things. To recognize the place of hope and the place of help is always in God. He will help. He will sustain. He'll carry you through. Will you come to Him, repent of your sins, confess Jesus as the Son of God, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins? Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?